You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, with that said, if you'd open up your Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, as we continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, It will be measured back to you. We come to the final chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. And within this sermon, we have observed a consistent contrast being made between the Pharisaical self-righteousness of the religious leaders versus the righteousness that God accepts. The righteousness of the religious leaders was based primarily on their external practices of piety. They demonstrated righteous deeds through their outward performance in order to be seen by men. Yet this flawed human attempt to be right in the sight of God fell short of the standard of requirements. The only righteousness that is acceptable to God is the righteousness of Christ. And his righteousness cannot be earned. It is only to be imputed through faith in his finished work on the cross on our behalf. In coming to chapter 7, in verse 1, we read one of the most well-known verses And also one of the most misunderstood verses, perhaps, in the Bible. It has to do with the subject of judging one another. I believe it's important for us to understand what Jesus means when he uses the word judge. Over the years, I have encountered those who have attempted to use this verse as a response to justify their behavior and say, the Bible says, don't judge me. However, they've used this passage out of its context and its true meaning. Jesus is not saying that it is wrong under any circumstance to pass unfavorable judgment on the conduct of others. In fact, the Bible instructs us clearly that we are to be discerning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, we are exhorted to test all things. Hold fast to what is good. In order to test something, you have to have an opinion on it. You have to make a call, a judgment on it. Test it to see if it's right. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle John said, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, we see this example of testing certain things. The Apostle Paul, 
in writing to the Corinthians, he was exhorting them to be able to discern with wise judgment some of the troubled things that, that were transpiring in Corinth. They were tolerating sin. They were embracing it. And Paul said, listen, they also were taking one another to court and suing one another. He said, isn't there somebody in that congregation who is godly enough and discerning enough who can judge between the two of you? He was asking for someone in the church to step up and help these people work through their issues. And in order to do that, You'd have to use judgment. And Paul would say in that same epistle, don't you know that one day we're going to judge angels? Think about that. There has to be a balance in this. What Jesus is forbidding here in the Sermon on the Mount is hypocritical, fault-finding attitudes or opinions. That is a readiness to find fault and pass blame on minor issues that have no bearing on eternity or a person's walk with God. It's far too common and yet spiritually unhealthy, an unhealthy habit, I would say, of passing quick and hasty judgment. For with that mindset and that attitude comes a disposition of consistently magnifying the errors of others. This is what Jesus is condemning. This word judge that Jesus is referring to and forbidding is one who enjoys actively digging up dirt on others and reporting it. They take the place of the divine judge and that position has already been filled and not by us, but by the Lord. That You can't apply for that. That's his job. We're not qualified to take that position. We cannot see, listen, we can't see the hearts of people. We don't know what's going on inside of them. In Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said very clearly, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men. The Lord's the one that knows what's inside the heart of a person. I I don't know, but God does. An unmerciful condemnation of others was often practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's recorded for us a number of times within the Gospels. You see them modeling this kind of judgment, which Jesus is forbidding. Do you recall when the disciples were eating with unwashed hands? And it wasn't that they had not necessarily washed their hands, but they didn't wash their hands in a prescribed, traditional manner. And so the scribes and the Pharisees said, your disciples are unclean. Why? They didn't wash their hands. And there was a certain routine that you had to go through, which was rather extensive to truly cleanse your hands in order to be right in the sight of God. This, this was the wrong kind of judgment. Or one time the disciples were walking along the road and they took a head of grain and put it in their hands and rubbed it together and chewed on it. And, and they said, your disciples are harvesting on the Sabbath. Again, a false judgment being passed. When Jesus healed a blind man on the Sabbath, they said, you violated God's laws. Passing unlawful judgment. No no bearing for it. Or even the man with the withered hand. This was something that the Pharisees constantly practiced. So often, those who would carry themselves in this way can feel that they are right and everyone else is wrong, and that they are the standard to which others are to be measured by. 
The word for judge here is the word krino in the Greek. And it means basically to separate, choose, select, or determine. Jesus is speaking of the judgment of motives. He isn't suggesting that we are to be blind and undiscerning, but that we are to be gracious. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Oftentimes, we can pass quick judgment on another person when we don't have all of the information to the story. Have you ever made that mistake? Made a judgment call on partial information rather than all the information? In Proverbs 18, verse 13, it says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. In that same chapter, in chapter 18, verse 17, Proverbs, it says, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Make sure you get all the facts before you're making some kind of a judgment call. Jesus gives us some reasons why we are not to judge in this condemning way. The first and obvious is it's a command. He says, don't do it. That should be enough to stop us right there. It's a command of the Lord. It's not a suggestion. If you want to judge, that's fine. No, he's saying don't do this. This is, a, this is a command that he gives us. This is a precept that is presented and it is spoken with authority in the form of a command. And those which are true disciples of Jesus will seek to obey it. Because it's a command, we realize that when we judge, we're actually breaking the word of the Lord in this regard. The second reason we're not to judge in the way that is prescribed here, as Jesus tells us to avoid, is in order that we ourselves would not be judged by that exact same standard. It says, judge not that you be not judged. In Romans chapter 14, Paul said, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. God is able to make him stand. Who are you? Who made you the judge to judge in this way? If we are going around in a self-righteous attitude, judging others to condemnation, suggesting that there's no hope for him, he's beyond salvation. She's beyond the grace of God. She should be condemned. If we're doing that, then what's happening is we're actually heaping up for ourselves judgment. That same standard is going to be applied to us. And so I need to be careful how I handle somebody else's flesh lest it returns on me in that same way. What kind of measure are you using? What kind of standard are you using? If I'm using this kind of a standard, if I'm judging in this way that Jesus forbids, then I'm taking the place that God never intended for me to take. I believe that many times at the root of this type of judgment to condemnation, it's actually, and it can be, a byproduct, listen carefully, of jealousy, envy, pride. At the root of it, envious jealous of somebody else and so you judge their motives but you don't even know their heart oh look at them how could they i don't believe it did you see this and suddenly we're, we're passing this judgment on somebody we don't even know what's going on we think we do but we don't know what's behind it 
when we pass judgment in this way on a person who isn't doing something the way that we think it should be done, and we look at their motives or we condemn them, we're making a judgment that really only God is supposed to make. We don't know, again, the motives only God does. But there are times when we think that we do. I read a story in, it was recorded in 1884 that a young man had died. After his funeral, his grieving parents decided to establish a memorial in his name. And with that in mind, they met with Charles Eliot. He was the president of Harvard University. And Eliot received this unpretentious couple into his office and asked what he could do. After they expressed their desire to fund a memorial in honor of their son, Eliot impatiently said, perhaps you, maybe you wouldn't mind, uh, you have in mind a scholarship. And they responded, well, we were thinking of something more substantial than that, perhaps a, a building, the woman replied. In a patronizing tone, Eliot brushed aside the idea as being too expensive. And the couple wrongly, uh, he judged their, their motives wrongly, and they ended up leaving. He thought, there's no way you're going to be able to provide a bill. Why don't you, thank you for coming. And he basically, he just, he just dismissed them. The next year, the president of Harvard University, Eliot, learned that his, this plain pair had gone elsewhere, and they established a $26 million memorial named the Leland Stanford Junior University, better known as Stanford. That was a mistake. He misjudged them. He misjudged their appearance. He misjudged their motives, and I would say he missed out. In James chapter 4, verse 12, James put it this way. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? It's important that we obey this command not to judge, as Jesus says here, in this way. Also, it's important not to judge because this same standard that we use with somebody else is going to be measured back to us. Furthermore, it says here, with the same judgment that we use, it will be measured back to us. The rabbis taught that God has two measures when he judges a person. One measure is justice, and the other measure is mercy. The question that we ask ourselves, what measure do we want applied to us? Do we want the measure of mercy, or do we want the measure of justice? The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, Jesus said earlier in this sermon. If I don't show mercy, then I will not be on the receiving end of mercy. And if there's one thing I know about myself, I need a lot of mercy. I'm so thankful that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. I find that I need them every single day. I know I need mercy. And if I'm not merciful, I won't have that standard measured back to me. It is amazing, isn't it? How that sometimes we are critical of others when we see them committing our sins. You know what I mean? I mean, we're far more compassionate on ourselves than we are with others. We see other people's faults as cut and dry. But when we look at our faults, 
We're just in a process of sanctification. We just need mercy. But that person, you need to deal with them. But, but not us. In some way, by seeing our faults in someone else, we judge ourselves vicariously without having to repent. In that moment, we feel extremely self-righteous in some carnal way. Remember the name of A.B. Bruce. He said this, quote, Pharisaic vice is that of exalting ourselves by disparaging others. It's a very cheap way of attaining moral superiority. You remember that King David struggled with this. After he had sinned, committing adultery, followed by murder, he went on for a year in this deception. But the Lord knew about it. And David was miserable. And he writes about it. But then Nathan the prophet came to him one day and told him of a story of a man in his kingdom. He said, David, there's this wealthy man in your kingdom. He has all kinds of sheep. But there's another man, a neighbor of his, who had one sheep. It was like a a pet to him. It was like a family member. He loved it. And this wealthy man one day had a guest come to his house. And rather than take from the multitudes of sheep that he had, he went next door and he took this man's only sheep. And can you believe it? He killed it and he ate it, fed it to him. David, in a moment of rage and anger, said, the man that has done this shall die. And Nathan said, David, you're the man. David saw his sin in somebody else and he judged it harshly. You remember Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that went to the temple to pray? And when they went up, you remember that the Pharisee, as he was praying, Jesus said he spoke this parable about the two that were praying and the Pharisee saw himself as righteous and the publican as unrighteous and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. He's such a sinner. And, and Jesus spoke this parable and he, he said, he spoke it concerning those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. We learn that we need to be oh so merciful with other people because if we really know ourselves, we know that we need just as much mercy, if not more. Being gracious because we need grace. If we are going to err, let us be those that err on the side of grace and the side of mercy rather than in judgment. Jesus again said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, for with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So what Jesus is saying is we're not to be in the place of the ultimate judge. We're not to judge to condemnation for then we will be judged in the same manner. We're not to go around sniffing out everybody's sin and pointing it out. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we are never to judge or that we're never called upon to go to a brother or go to a sister who has stumbled in sin or is backslidden and seek to reason with them. We are to judge and we are to use wisdom, not to condemnation, but to identification. And, and sometimes even the Bible tells us to discrimination. The Bible tells us to mark those who cause division in the body of Christ. 
and to separate ourselves from them. And there are times when a brother may err in his way or a sister may err in her way and we have to lovingly go to them, graciously seek to restore them, not to condemn them. To illustrate this point even further, Jesus gives a very practical example in the form of a question. Look at what he says in verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 3. And why? Here's the question. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Interesting picture here. The figures of a speck and a plank, I find this humorous. To me, I see it in my mind's eye, what this actually looks like. A speck, the word is karphos, and it's likened to a twig or a splinter. Some commentators say it's like sawdust. Sawdust comes from a plank. So here you have a man with dust in his eye and another man with a beam, a two by four, out of his eye. They're made of the same material. And the man with the plank says, hey, listen, I can, you got something there. You, you need to deal with that. that. That is, you need to deal with that speck. In fact, let me, let me help you. Imagine having somebody operate on you who had a plank coming out of their eye. No, 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 don't touch me. You, this is a sensitive area. And it is sensitive, but I know how to deal with it. Obviously, you don't because you haven't dealt with it in your own life. Oh, you can see it in everybody else, but you're so busy looking at the sawdust and the splinters in people's eyes, you haven't taken the time to look. There's a full-on redwood in your face. You know, deal with that first before you go around and try to help other people out. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't try to help other people out, but you might want to deal with what's going on right here before you attempt to help other people because you'll be far more effective. So here you have a man with dust in his eye and another man with a beam, a two by four out of his eye. They're made of the same material. And the man with the plank says, hey, listen, I can, you got something there. You, you need to deal with that. that. That is, you need to deal with that speck. In fact, let me, let me help you. Imagine having somebody operate on you who had a plank coming out of their eye. No, 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 don't touch me. You, this is a sensitive area. And it is sensitive, but I know how to deal with it. Obviously, you don't because you haven't dealt with it in your own life. Oh, you can see it in everybody else, but you're so busy looking at the sawdust and the splinters in people's eyes, you haven't taken the time to look. There's a full-on redwood in your face. You know, deal with that first before you go around and try to help other people out. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't try to help other people out, but you might want to deal with what's going on right here before you attempt to help other people because you'll be far more effective. Again, it's so easy to see our sin in somebody else's life. Look at him. So prideful. That guy is so prideful. Why? How do you recognize that so quickly? Because I'm humble. That's how. 
Actually, it's probably because you are also prideful, and you've seen that many times in the mirror. Uh, and it's you, but you don't want to see it. Oh, that sister, she's so concerned about this and that. Look at her hair. Ah, why, why would you say that? Why would you think that? Oh my goodness, did you see that? Probably because that's you. That's you. You've got a big old beam hanging out your eye. Stop doing that. We can quickly analyze and even critically judge because, let's face it, we struggle with the very same thing. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judgest, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you practice the same things. Here you are, critical of somebody else, but you're doing that exact same thing in your life. This is, the, this is your song, this is your one-stringed instrument that you play on all day, pointing out somebody else's deal, but the fact is, that is exactly your problem. And I don't know if... Pointing it out in somebody else's life in some way takes the heat off you, perhaps. Maybe it's a cover, it's a cloak for vice. And you look at this guy, man, this guy's really struggling. Hey, fellas, let's gather around. We really need to pray for so-and-so because he's, he's, we need to gather up. What's going on? Oh, I, if you, well, okay. You know, and suddenly you're, you're but the fact is that's your, that's your thing. And sometimes you can even project it onto somebody else that it's bigger than what it really is when it's, It's like a huge area in your own life. You know, the disciples, they struggled with this. They were always talking about who's going to be the greatest. I mean, it was a constant thing. And they were living with Jesus for three years. And they're saying, who's going to be the greatest? I mean, granted, Jesus is the greatest. I mean, we all know that. But I mean, next to Jesus, who's the greatest? That's what we want to discuss and dialogue about. And they would constantly go back and forth. And it's, it's pretty funny because there were times when they would be talking about it on the road and Jesus would say, and he knows everything, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they would change the subject, nothing. Just talking about how awesome it was that we fed 5,000. That was pretty cool, Jesus, what you did. Wow. No, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. But it got to the point where they kept on. I mean, this, this went so far as to the day before he was to be crucified, they were still having this discussion, who's gonna be the greatest? But there came a point when James and John invited their mother to come and bow before Jesus and ask him to give the opportunity of sitting on his right hand and left hand in glory to her two sons. I mean, what mother doesn't want the best for their boy? (laughs) And she comes down in the midst of all the disciples and, you know, you can just picture it in your mind, can't you? There's all the disciples and James and John just sitting there like, yeah, nothing's happening. And hey, what's your mom doing here? Oh, hey, mom. What's going on? Yeah, James, why is your mom here? John, I don't, mom, come on, what are you? Oh, oh. And then she bows down before Jesus, asks, and it says, and they didn't stop her. Like, oh, mom, I mean, maybe it might happen. I mean, I th- we think we should go ahead. And, and Jesus he tells her, listen, this, this is for reserved for those who it's been reserved for. You, you don't know what you're asking. She really didn't know what she was asking because when Jesus came into glory on his right hand and on his left hand were, were two people on crosses. Do you, is that what she, she didn't know what she was asking for. But the interesting thing is that when she did this, the rest of the disciples, it says they were filled with anger. They were filled with rage. How could you invite your mother? And personally, I think they were thinking, 
I should have called my mom. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) They saw their sin in somebody else. James and John just kind of, hey, let's call mom. You know, Jesus has a sympathetic heart toward mothers. Anyway, they saw their sin and they got upset. They had the same thoughts. They were guilty. This can happen to us. We can remain unaware of what's going on in our own life, but we can see it in someone else's life. I believe that is perhaps why in James chapter one, it says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that observes his natural face in a mirror and he observes himself and he goes away and immediately he forgets what kind of a man he is or was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one is blessed in what he does. It's clear, again, that Jesus is not condemning any form of criticism, but rather the criticism of others when we exercise no comparable self-criticism. Start with you. Start with me. That's where I need to begin. Sometimes, let me, let me bring it home a little bit, and I mean home, like your house with your marriage. Oftentimes we know what the other person is supposed to be doing and we don't mind telling them whether they need to hear it or not. We, they need to hear it. This is what, this is your requirement. Let's turn in Ephesians for a second here. Let's just review this, uh, together. Uh, we're going to do devotions on this verse for a year. I mean, this is this, you want to tell the person what they're supposed to be doing. You know what they're supposed to be doing. But are you doing, am I doing, what I'm supposed to be doing? That's really what it comes down to. Apply a little self-criticism here. Look at myself in the mirror. Look at yourself in the mirror. Compare yourself to the Word and see if you're doing what, what God's asked you to do. I think of what the Apostle Paul told Timothy, who was ministering in the church. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he said, Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In other words, Paul said, Timothy, you got a job of pastoring the church, but here's where it starts. Check yourself. Make sure you apply the doctrine to your own life. Take heed to yourself. The Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's where it starts. Jesus gives us the balance here. He says, hypocrite. If you want to help somebody out, stop being a hypocrite because it's hypocritical to walk around with a beam in your eye and try to help somebody else out. That's, that's hypocritical. Rather, what he says to do is, first of all, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly and remove the speck out of your brother's eye. That's where it starts. Re- realize that this is hypocritical judgment. Stop doing that. Take care of your own matters. Repent of what's going on in your own life. And then you're going to be able to help somebody else out. And you're going to do it with the right heart and the right attitude. It won't be self-righteous. It'll be merciful because you just received mercy as God forgave you of the plank that's in your face or in your eye, which is technically in your face. <laughs> F.B. Meyer said this, and I, I've always, I love this and I, I seek to apply this as it relates to ministry. I want to pass it on to you. Here's what he said. He said, when you see a brother or a sister in sin, remember this. First of all, We don't know how hard he or she has tried not to sin. We don't know that. Second, 
We don't know the power of the forces that have assailed them. Third, we don't know what we would have done if we were in the very same circumstance. Think about that. In Psalm 51, the psalmist said it this way. He said, create, and I'll emphasize, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. When? When there's a right heart in me, when I'm upheld by a generous spirit, when he restores to me the joy of my salvation, that, when that's happening, then I'm able to help other people. But if that's not happening, I'm, I'm gonna miss it entirely and be hypocritical. Jesus said to Peter, after he had denied him three times, he had stumbled. Jesus encouraged him, Peter, after you've been restored, Go and strengthen your brethren. You know, Peter's whole discipleship program that he was in with Jesus, he was always at the head. He was always leading the way. He was always saying stuff. And sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad. And I'm glad that the Bible records it because most of us can identify with him in so many ways. And we're going to hang out in heaven and say, Pete, man, I'm so glad they wrote that stuff about you. I, I can relate. And, um, but, but the interesting thing is that th- throughout the whole time, Peter, Peter was more adamant than the rest of the disciples, I'm willing to die with you, Jesus. I'm willing to do this for you, Jesus. There's no way. I would never deny you, Jesus. never going to happen. The rest of these guys, they probably will. It's a good chance. And these guys are like lower tier disciple, but I'm like, you know, the A team right here. These, the rest of these guys, I, they will deny you, but I would never do it. I'm ready to die with you. I have a sword and I'm going to use it in the garden. And he did. And he cut a guy's ear off. He's probably aiming for his head, but he went for his ear and he got him. But Peter, you remember, he denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said, and the rooster crowed. And it says that Jesus and Peter looked at one another after Peter had denied him. It says he went out and he wept bitterly. But Peter was restored after that, privately. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, but also publicly in John's gospel. We find it there. Peter was restored publicly in front of the rest of the disciples. But from that moment on, he was different. He was humbled. And he was able to restore others. And I'm sure if you've ever failed and God's forgiven you, you're far more compassionate, far more gracious with other people who have also failed. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken... In any trespass, you who are spiritual seek to restore such a one, listen to this, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. If you're going to confront that brother, if you're going to confront that sister who's been carried away, just make sure you remember 
who you are, where you came from, what God delivered you out of, and how gracious he was to you, and how merciful he's been to you. And, and remember that, and that will help you to actually minister in a way that honors the Lord and actually helps that person. If you're not willing to go down that road of restoration, then don't even jump in and get involved. If you're not willing to help them, if you're not willing to see them reconciled and restored, if you're, if you're going to jump in just for the sake of confrontation without the desire of restoration, then don't do it. Pray and ask God to change your heart and then go to that person. It's important. We examine our heart before the Lord. We go to our brother or sister in humility with always the goal in mind of restoration. Now, when we do examine ourselves, our motives, and we prepare to go to a brother in in love with the intent of restoring them, or sometimes it's going to go well, and other times it won't go well. Perhaps you've experienced that in your life. And there is, again, the balance here. Look at what Jesus says in the very next verse. Verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Oh, pigs and dogs are animals that were considered extremely unclean among the Jewish people. And when it says dog, it's not talking about like your pet dog, your chihuahua, your whatever breed of choice that you have, a labradoodle. Um, It's not whatever, you know, it's part, it's not talking about that. It's talking about those dogs that live in the dumpster. A lot of times you see them in third world countries. It looks like a dog, but it's very, it's frightening. They have, it's just all kinds of things attached to them and it's scary. You see, you run from those kind of animals, right? I do. Uh, I don't pet them. Um, but what, what he's talking about, those kind of animals. And when, of course, with a pig, I mean, they live in the mud. They eat, all, you know, they're just, to the Jews, they, no bacon whatsoever, not even close to pigs. It's not part of their life. It was something that was forbidden. So Jesus says, don't take what is holy and cast it before them lest they trample it if they don't receive it. There are times in presenting the gospel to someone that they will absolutely reject it, mock it, blaspheme it, and you realize, I'm not going to take what is holy and simply throw it in front of them so they can trample it and just blaspheme the name of Jesus. And so what I will do is I'll, I'll just move on to the person who can receive it. Sometimes you can get so trapped in, in, in debate and so forth where it just becomes not, not dialogue, but a debate and, and not with, with the intent of, of, of uh, just arguing and it becomes confrontational and, and then they start blaspheming his name. It's like, you know what, I, I just got to move on. I'm not going to take what is holy and just have it be trampled and I'll just move on and I'll move on and I'll pray for them. Lord, only you can get a hold of them. Only you can speak to their heart. You remember Jesus said to his disciples in Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter, he said, whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Just shake it off, walk away from it and just just leave it there. Let God deal with it. If they're not going to receive it, if they don't want to hear it, if they blaspheme, just, just it's okay. Move on, pray for them. 
the Apostle Paul, he also had this principle in his own ministry, in his own missionary efforts. You remember when he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey and the Jews were contradicting their preaching there in Antioch, Presidia. Paul said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but since you have thrust it from you, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, Paul said, we turn to the Gentiles. He presented it to them. They wanted nothing to do with it. Paul said, fine, then we're going to go to those that want to hear. And he went out into the Gentile regions and they responded and churches were planted. Again, it happened when Paul was in Corinth on his second missionary journey, when the Jews opposed and they reviled him. Paul looked and he he actually shook his garments and he said, I am innocent of your blood. I I presented it to you, but I'm, I'm shaking this off just like Jesus said. And he moved on to the next location. And sometimes that happens. People don't want to hear it. They become, even in this day and age, violently opposed to it. And so what do you do? Do you get in a shouting match with them? Do you? No, I don't think that honors God. I think you just move on and you pray for them and just say, okay, I'll be, I'll be praying for you. Then in verse 7, Jesus speaks once again of prayer. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What an incredible invitation this is from the Lord. To ask, seek, knock. A-S-K. Ask, seek, knock. And the promise is, that as we ask and as we seek and as we knock, that the door will be opened unto us. This is an invitation. Guys, listen, you have access to the throne of grace from wherever you are, anytime you desire, into the presence of the Lord. You're his child. And the Lord invites us in. And he's not too busy. He's not saying, you know what, you need to, ske- you need to schedule this. I, I got a lot going on up here with the universe and all. Could you? It's not like that. He is available. He's accessible. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, it says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and and buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. It's just this invitation from the Lord, just saying, come. Jesus would say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. There was just this constant invitation that Jesus gave to people, just just an open-door policy. You can come, and you can approach the throne, and you can present your needs. It's an invitation. Do you take advantage of that? Is it your first resort, or is it your last Make it your first to just come before the Lord, to ask him to seek, to knock. And the language actually implies continuing to ask, seek, and knock. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. It says that the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's a consistency. It's continuing to ask. Listen, maybe you said, well, I already asked. Did he say no? No, he didn't say no. Did he say yes? No, he didn't say yes. Well, what did he say? I think he said, wait. Okay, then wait. You don't have to stop asking. They're making a point when the Lord says, no. Don't ask me about that. that no. Okay, if he said no, then he said no. But if he said, wait, I'm going to wait. I'm going to keep asking. 
I think for most of us, we love it when he says yes. It's difficult sometimes when he says no, but when he says wait, that's really hard because is it going to be a yes or is it going to be a no? It's hard to wait on the Lord for me. I don't know about the rest of you, but for me, I find that this sometimes is difficult. And so I got to keep on praying. And just because God hasn't answered yet doesn't mean he's not going to answer you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor John Randall. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor John's teaching ministry by visiting a dailywalk.org.